Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. On today's pod, will a gene therapy approval in DMD harm innovation? CBER Director Peter Marks' vision for getting ultra-rare therapies to patients faster? A new director for NIH. What should Monica Bertignoli prioritize? The debt ceiling in life sciences. And Simone is back. And she's going to fill us in on the scuttlebutt from Bioequity Europe in Dublin. But first, looking for a powerful new partner to accelerate breakthrough cancer research? At Cancer Research Horizons, their business is breakthroughs. Cancer Research Horizons is the innovation arm of Cancer Research UK, one of the world's largest private funders of cancer research, with access to $400 million of world-class research and the expertise of 4,000 researchers and clinicians. Cancer Research Horizons has formed over 60 startups and helped bring 11 drugs to market. Cancer Research Horizons is looking to partner with pharmas, biotechs, and investors. Find out more at cancerresearchhorizons.com slash collaborate dash us. Alrighty, let's get started. A lot of ground to cover today. The days ahead could bring the first FDA approval of a gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. That would mark a major milestone for patients and the biopharma industry. Two weeks ago, the urgency of getting a potentially disease-modifying treatment to DMD patients outweighed a litany of concerns about safety and efficacy as an FDA advisory committee voted narrowly in favor of granting accelerated approval to Sarepta's gene therapy. And now FDA is expected to issue its decision by May 29th. Lauren, on Friday, you wrote that an approval means a difficult choice for patients. Why is that the case? So the issue with this gene therapy and any gene therapy that uses an AAV vector as the delivery vehicle right now is that it could be the case that patients will only be able to receive one dose of an AAV-based gene therapy. You know, so this, this may be their only shot. The issue is that once you're treated with this type of therapy, you mount neutralizing antibodies against the vector that would cause a potentially dangerous immune reaction and could render any future therapy that uses this kind of vector ineffective. And it's not just redosing with the same one. This could be cross-reactive, and it often is cross-reactive with other AAV-based gene therapies. That means that the stakes are very high when there's uncertainty, as there is with Sarepta's product, about safety and efficacy. If, you know, patients may be faced with the choice of whether to take what's available now with that uncertainty and, you know, stop progression of the disease as early as possible or potentially stop it, or wait to see what better comes along if something more effective comes along at some point in the future. So this will be an issue for some patients. There is a group of patients who cannot wait to who need an intervention now to stop progression of their disease before it gets to an irreversible point, which is often when they lose the ability to walk. But there are also patients who 
are in earlier stages of their treatment who, if a gene therapy such as this were to be approved, will will ultimately face that choice. Yeah, I think that it's important to put it in context that the decision may come this week about an accelerated approval, but actually the tensions that you lay out aren't really subject to that. I mean, it could get a regular approval later. This is an intrinsic problem with gene therapies with AAV. And in this particular therapies case, I think that it's not clear that this is a slam dunk for efficacy, let, let alone safety. I think the other thing that's really hard for patients to navigate, patients, physicians, and their caregivers is that Lauren, you'll get me the right number. I know that Pfizer has a phase three product behind it, and then there's two or three others earlier in clinical development that are sort of phase one or two. And these express different types of the dystrophin gene or or microdystrophin, but it's not really easy to look at any of them and go, oh, that one is going to be fundamentally better. Let's wait for that. On the other hand, the potentially fundamentally better ones are preclinical right now. So walk us through that landscape a bit. Sure. And, and before I do that, I think an interesting point is that this is a very specific issue so far to this indication because, you know, you mentioned that this will this could happen with, with any gene therapies. But in, in Duchenne, the amount of innovation coming behind this first program is kind of a, a bit unprecedented because we've seen with some other gene therapy indications, uh, rare gene therapy indications that, you know, companies have kind of dropped out of the pipeline after something is near the market, but that's not the case here. So behind Sarepta's program, there are four other clinical stage programs. They all are expressing microdystrophin, which is a truncated version of dystrophin, just like Sarepta's, in some cases with different sequences, and they all use an AAV vector. So, you know, it's likely that patients will have to choose between one of these. And, And I have heard from some of the interviews I've done that because they're still using these these same core features, there may not be a huge level of differentiation in, in the outcomes. Maybe you can explain really quickly about the truncated version, because I think that's something that's specific to DMD. Maybe it's going to be the case in other indications, but it, there are an awful lot of um, gene therapy indications where that isn't an issue. Exactly. So the dystrophin gene, which is mutated in DMD, is... It's an enormous gene and it can't fit inside of the AAV viral vector. So in order to make something that can fit, companies are sort of choosing the domains from this gene that they think are most essential to make a functional protein. Right now, we don't have definitive evidence, you would argue, and it was argued in the adcom, that the truncated versions that companies have developed will fully capture the function of a full-length protein. And so this will be the case for a few other indications. It's often not the case. Uh, the proteins that are mutated can often fit into these vectors. So that's that's where a lot of the uncertainty about efficacy comes in. And it's the reason that there's this whole debate about accelerated approval and wh- whether expression of microdystrophin is a good surrogate for function in this indication, which we'll see when we have the full data. And right. It, it isn't, isn't, isn't there also an issue which is going to be the case with other gene therapies, where there's question about durability, especially when you're giving a gene therapy to to kids. Of course, yeah, and that that's something that struck me from the advisory committee meeting as it was almost completely ignored is the fact that 
we have no idea how long this expression will last. When you're treating children, the muscle does grow. And every time these cells do divide, the, the effect will be diluted. So no one knows how long these gene therapies are going to last. And unless the technology comes along that will allow these patients to be redosed with another AAV vector or treated with another gene therapy that does not use an AAV vector, the effect may wane and they may have no, no gene therapy treatment whenever that does. Yeah, and I know that we've discussed this before, but just to remind everyone that, you know, normally with a gene replacement therapy or a protein replacement therapy, you know that you have to replace that protein in order to get functionality. What this disease has so far defied is understanding what amount of dystrophin, what level of dystrophin you need to express in order to see a functional improvement. And you know, Sarepta's earlier products, which did this by a different technology, have really yet to establish that, even though they've been approved under accelerated approval, we don't yet have the confirmatory trials that demonstrate that. And it's just so complicated because even in their earlier programs, these were truncated versions of dystrophin. You know, we don't know how much full length dystrophin we need, and we really don't know how much of these truncated versions that we need. Obviously, a lot to chew on here. Uh, I do want to circle back to Simone's question earlier on, what is behind this in the pipeline, Lauren? So for the preclinical pipeline, beyond those, those four other programs they mentioned, it's a lot, of, a lot of AAV vectors as well. There are some companies who may sidestep this redosing problem with non-viral vectors or other types of viruses, like a herpes simplex virus as the delivery vehicle. And then we see some technologies that are emerging to solve both the redosing problem and the fact that sort of the carrying capacity problem, the fact that you have to use a microdystrophin right now with a lot of different techniques that are in the very early stages of development. So in the story, we have also rounded up some of those, specifically some that were highlighted at last week's ASGCT meeting as sort of a snapshot of where, where that innovation is going. All right. And you can head to biocentury.com to dig into Lauren's story. There's a nice pipeline chart that lays it all out for you. Now, last week on the Biocentury show, Peter Marks, director of FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, joined Steve in conversation to lay out his vision for using a suite of regulatory tools to smooth the path for medicines to treat ultra-rare diseases he spoke at length about gene therapies. Steve, what did you learn? A, a great deal. And we recorded the interview, I should say, two days before the DMD advisory committee meeting. So we didn't touch on that directly. But the things that we talked about, I think, are highly relevant to that and to thinking about the issues more broadly. He talked about the use of the accelerated approval pathway to approve gene therapies. He stressed the utility of accelerated approval for facilitating gene therapies for conditions that are so small that there's unlikely to be more than one gene therapy under development. And he did acknowledge the issue of the benefit-risk considerations being different for larger indications when there's more in the pipeline. What he said is, look, for many rare diseases, you know something about the protein you're trying to replace or get rid of. Hopefully, you know what the right amount is. That can be the basis for a surrogate endpoint to support accelerated approval. He also acknowledged that there are risks and when I pushed him on it, um, he said, yeah, those risks include the, what we've been talking about, the difficulty or impossibility in many cases of redosing when other gene therapies use the same vector. 
We also talked about Operation Warp Speed for rare diseases. That's a pilot program that CBER is going to announce in the fall. Basically, it's going to use the rapid iteration approach that was used to cut up to a year off the review times for COVID vaccines to speed rare disease therapies. And we talked about um, the new platform technology designation. That's something I've written about at length. Uh, draft guidance is going to be coming out at the end of the year. The basic idea is to designate some technologies, and gene therapy is really a poster child for this, some technologies as platforms, and then to say basically that companies can recycle common parts of their review applications, for example, on their CMC, their uh, manufacturing, and uh, maybe in their toxicology, and then just get the parts that have changed reviewed by FDA. That frees up the companies. It should reduce the cost and time required to develop new gene therapies based on a common platform. And it should also allow FDA's reviews to focus on the areas where there's the most risk. Steve, I thought one of the, a couple of interesting things. One is that, you know, in the interview, you told him that you had solicited input into what do people want to know? And the answer to that was sort of an internal operational thing about how FDA works. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And I wanted to tell you that one person that I heard who listened to the interview thought he made a really good case for why work for FDA. And I know that, you know, we've been talking with the other agencies. Staffing is a really big deal in all the regulatory agencies. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the internal machinations and what you're what you're learning there. Yeah. So so I asked him about uh, two elements of it. One is how does he collaborate? How does CBER collaborate with the other centers, particularly the Center for Drugs? And what are his interactions like with the Office of the Commissioner? So he said that when it comes to um, working with CEDAR and also with the um, Center for Devices, he said, well, we're, we're on the same page on a lot of issues. Um, we're broadly in agreement and things like that. But he acknowledged when I pushed him on a little bit that there, there are problems with the coordination between the centers. And he said, uh, you know, acknowledged that there's been criticism of the lack of consistency between CBER, uh, the Center for Biologics, and CDER, the Center for Drugs, on endpoints for rare diseases. And that's something that I wrote another story about separately recently. And then when it came to the Office of Commissioner, it was, it was quite interesting. He said, well, really, he has a, what he considers to be an excellent relationship with the Office of the Commissioner because they're not interfering in the work of the center. Uh, he said that they, he's not getting much um, admonishment from the commissioner or the office of the commissioner to do particular things, and that he has a great deal of autonomy to run the center the way that he thinks it should be run. All right, you can find Steve's interview with Marks on BioCentury's YouTube channel. You can also listen to it as a podcast. Staying with Steve, Steve, uh, uh, you had a busy week last week. Monica Bertagnoli has been nominated to be the next NIH director. It only took President Biden 206 days since Francis Collins announced his plans to resign to select a candidate for what is the most important job in science. Steve, you wrote an editor's commentary on what she should do, the three things that she needs to focus on. What are they? So backing up just a little bit, what, one of the things I also pointed out is that um, if and when 
she is confirmed by the Senate, and I don't expect there'll be much difficulty, but who knows, she can only count on being NIH director through January 2025, because nobody knows what's going to happen after that. That'll give her the shortest term as confirmed NIH director, uh, basically in the history of the job, since the Senate has been confirming um, NIH directors in 1971. I said, well, I thought about it, and I thought, well, if she's only going to have that short period of time, there's an awful lot of things that she she could do if she had more time. But what can she do in that short period of time that will actually make a really big difference? And I came up with three things. The first, fix the postdoc crisis, at least advance the ball on that. And basically, the postdoc crisis is twofold. One is that there are far more postdocs than there ever could be jobs as principal investigators. And the system as it's set up now doesn't do a good job of training these people or preparing them for jobs other than being principal investigators, even though the vast majority of them are never going to be able to be principal investigators. The second part of that, which is related, is pay for postdocs. There are a lot of postdocs who are working basically at, um, at what I call Starbucks level wages. That might be a slight exaggeration, but they're certainly not receiving a living wage. And they're doing it for a long time. The average age of the of a first R01 grant that makes somebody into an independent investigator is uh, what, 44? And I think that that was a few years ago. My guess is that it's probably higher now. Second issue that I think is really important, it's essential, is rebuilding trust in NIH, especially in Congress. There are an awful lot of freshmen in Congress who ran against Tony Fauci. And many of them believe that Tony Fauci and NIH are synonymous with each other. And there's a lot of hostility toward NIH. Much of it, I would say, is completely irrational and unjustified, but it's there. And she needs to urgently to turn that around. Third issue, leadership for the next generation. There are open uh, positions as institute directors. One is replacing Fauci. Another is going to be replacing herself as the um, head of NCI. And there are other open jobs. And then there, what I didn't put in the story, but I, I probably should have, is that there also there are, there's a second tier of leadership across NIH where there are people who are in their late 70s and early 80s. And when you talk to mid-level investigators at NIH and the academic community, there's an awful lot of grumbling and saying, you know, it's time for some of these people to move on and create some space at the top for new people and new thinking. So those are the, the three things that I came up with. All right. Well, quickly, Steve, while we've got you here, everyone is talking about the debt ceiling, and I've got to wonder, what is at stake here for the life sciences? So um, the short-term things are, are obvious, and people are going to be writing about them and thinking about them, obviously, whatever it happens to the markets, whatever happens to interest rates, the ability to deliver care, you know, if um, Medicare um, is cut, things like that. Those are the short-term things. After the debt, I think what's most important, what people haven't focused on enough is, what's the world going to be like after this has been resolved? Either if we hit the debt ceiling and there's some kind of catastrophe, it's going to be resolved at some point, or it's going to be averted before it happens. In either case, the cost of it is going to be a very large cut in discretionary spending. A lot of, uh, of some of the biggest areas of government spending have been walled off. So that's going to lead to a lot of pressure on other areas, two areas that are specific interest to our listeners, I think, are um, FDA 
and NIH. I'll be writing this week about what's happening with the FDA budget. Basically, Congress is moving toward a flat funding for FDA in the coming year, uh, which is a problem because uh, they have increased costs every year. Their costs of, of payroll go up every year. And um, if they have flat funding, that's in effect a cut. But the bigger problem with that is that they're achieving or they're planning to achieve flat funding by using funds that have been clawed back from COVID. They were appropriated for COVID, but haven't been spent. The problem with that is that that creates a cliff the following year, because that money won't be available the following year. And it doesn't look like Congress is going to be in a mood to appropriate a great deal more money the following year. If that's what happens, FDA could really find itself being kicked over a financial cliff, and that could have impacts on its ability to to regulate and certainly to innovate. All right. Well, we trust you to stay on top of this for us. Stories will be coming out on biocentry.com. And and I failed to mention that Steve's editor's commentary is up on our website as well. Simone, welcome back. Last week, Biocentry and EBD Group wrapped the 23rd annual Bioequity Europe Conference in Dublin, Ireland. And Simone, uh, you were moderating panels, you were chatting up folks in the hallways. Uh, what were what were some of the things that you learned that maybe surprised you that you didn't expect going into it? So, you know, I've been going to bioequity for about 10 years now. It's always a great conference. This year, I wouldn't say that it's a pandemic rebound because we had that last year. There was a lot of enthusiasm. But I think that behind the numbers and part of the great attendance and so on, I have to give to my colleague, Josh Berlin, who put on a fantastic program and really organized a great event. It's a very interesting time. So on the one hand, I mean, everybody knows the capital markets are really crap right now. It's really a terrible environment to be raising money in. And yet the level of energy and enthusiasm and excitement is sort of at odds with that. You'd kind of think it's the heady days, but it isn't. So we had a lot of really interesting panel content. There seems to be at the same time as everybody understanding how hard it is, there seems to be a level of energy and enthusiasm. I, I don't really want to go as far as optimism because nobody is talking about when this is going to end. But what they are talking about is this. We know that Europe traditionally, you know, European companies raise less money than their US counterparts. But at the same time, the European companies think that that actually has given them a better discipline of capital efficiency. And they think that they are perhaps better armed to, you know, work their way through this era of capital rationing. There are some people who talk about, on the panels, they talk about, we go in, we have these very difficult conversations. I think companies across the ecosystem are doing this. What should we cut? What do we spend on? Where do we prune? And they, the one person likened this to being on the, on, you know, exercising or being on the treadmill. It's pretty awful while you're doing it, but afterwards you come out feeling a whole lot better, like you've done a really good thing. So there's sort of a sense that companies and the ecosystem is doing what it needs to do, that we've come through this era of sort of heady enthusiasm. And now 
the good companies feel pretty confident that they can come up with good programs and be rewarded for them. So there's a lot of focus on creating value. A couple more things. You asked about what surprised me. So this year we had some R&D panels, something we've started recently. We had an R&D panel on AI and data, an R&D panel on cell and gene therapies, which you know are very, very hot areas right now. We had an R&D panel on, on neuro, on neuroscience, and the room was full. I didn't really expect that. Neurology is hot again. We see that in the numbers and you see that again by, you know, you go to these sessions and you see the, you know, you take the temperature and there's a lot of interest right now in neuro, not only neurodegeneration, also other areas of, of neuropsych and precision psychiatry. And so that was a little bit surprising to me. We have Arthur Franken of Gilda joining us on the next BioCentury show, and I'm sure that you will have a chance to dig deep into the European funding environment and a lot of the issues that came up at BioEquity. So continuing that conversation there. That's right, Jeff. And one more thread from BioEquity. So we had for the first time a fireside chat with an EMA official, Tony Humphreys. That was a really great session. It was called a cocktail fireside chat. And um, Steve Usden is going to actually ramp that up in Amsterdam on June the 12th. Steve is going to have a one-on-one -on -one fireside chat with the head of EMA, Ema Cook. That is that going to be, that gonna be um, cocktails also? It is actually, Steve. There is going to be a reception. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not yet ascertained whether the two of you will have a glass of wine in your hand, as we did. But it's something that if you play your cards right, I think we could maybe manage. But I'm sure that either way, Steve, this is going to be a great discussion. And it is in Amsterdam, June the 12th. Go to our LinkedIn or our website to find the details complimentary registration and we look forward to seeing as many of you as possible there and steve we know that wine's not not really your drink right no no but um i'm not sure if we're allowed to drink what i drink um Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's amsterdam dude sure we can <laughs> anything goes uh well just quickly next year bioequity is heading to spain to San Sebastian. And if you want to get a jump on registration, head to bioequityeurope.com. If you want to be a presenting company, just reach out to me. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Simone, Steve, Lauren, great insights today. Great to have you on as always. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals, and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.